I wanted to say a few words about the current situation with the, the pandemic of the coronavirus. So before we get down to God's word, I thought I would just acknowledge this. It's a certainly a <clears throat> it's certainly the most major uh, happening in the whole world today. And I didn't feel it was right to depart from our uh, study in John's letters, but rather just to just say a few words uh, before we go into that. So the situation as of today, which will probably sound rather silly months and years from now, is that in the UK we have around 2,000 people contracted this virus, and I think there are 60, uh, 60 deaths so far. But it is rising exponentially. And so we will find that every so many days, maybe every five or six days, the number of cases will double. <clears throat> and of course, those cases are not accurate because so many people are isolating themselves at home and their symptoms are going undiagnosed. So... So as of today, this, the numbers of people who've died uh, are smaller than for regular endemic flu that we're used to. The problem with this is it's both more contagious and more deadly. And so if it carries on in its current uh, trajectory, it will, it will certainly outdo the flu that we're, we're used to. The, the, the biggest threat at the moment is that there would be a, a sudden spike in people contracting the virus. It's because if, if it all happens too soon, then the health, the health service will be overwhelmed. And there will obviously be problems in other areas as well, in provision of goods and services. And, and so the idea from the government is that we should delay, delay the onset of it, so that there will still be a spike. It will still, it will still come to a maximum and, and then decline, presumably. <clears throat> but that we should try to delay that. So it's called flattening the curve, so to speak. So it means that if we have the same number of cases and the same number of deaths, even, but spread over a longer time. It means that the, the health service and the supply of, of goods and essential services can manage at that level. It's the idea. Well, no doubt I'll be expected to give a biblical view, of course, a biblical view. The biblical view of this is firstly, of course, that in God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It says in Deuteronomy 37, verse uh, 39, God says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. He is sovereign. And all natural disasters and diseases are from 
God. All of them. I was um, reading a book. I was reading a book by uh, Charnock. Charnock said, book about attributes of God. I thought he said something interesting. It says here, God as a sovereign gives instructions to every judgment when and against whom it shall march and what cities, what persons it shall arrest. And he is punctually obeyed by them as a sovereign Lord. All creatures stand ready for his call and are prepared to be executioners of his vengeance when he speaks the word. They are his hosts by creation and in array for his service. At the sound of his trumpet or the beat of his drum, they troop together with arms in their hands to put his orders exactly in execution. So he's suggesting that we, we view all of creation as potential armies for, for his bidding. And so we should see this tiny microscopic virus as being one of these creatures. And so we see it as certainly sent by God. He says in that famous verse in Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, if we've ascertained that God is, is behind it, he sent it. We can say then that the details of where it came from are almost irrelevant. You know, I, I believe some conspiracies are true, and there's conspiracies around at the moment saying, you know, it was, it was engineered and deliberately released. We'll never know. And some people say, you know, it's down to the, the, the lack of any knowledge of hygiene in these Chinese markets. That may be true, don't know. In a way, it doesn't matter because God sent it. And however it came about, they, those people, those actions, these are just these are just agents of God. And so taking a sort of higher view of the whole thing, this is all from God. The question is why does he why does he send us plagues and calamities and so on? Well we can say that there are numerous reasons um, and I've made a little list here and I'll give you a few of them. He sends them to show his displeasure at sin, his displeasure at sin, and to forewarn of a greater judgment that is coming at the last day. These things also remind us of the fall, because it is through the sin of a man that sin came into the world, and the reverberations are found in disease and suffering and death and so perhaps the most important one is that this has come as a judgment to provoke repentance amongst the people of this world they the people should fear when these things come they should fear and they should go to God and ask him to be merciful that is one of the purposes of these things. And the worst case scenario is that the person who's been sent 
this, this message, this shot across the bow by God. For them to then turn and rage against God and ask him, why have you done this? Why have you hurt it? Why have you killed my grandmother? And complain. How awful, how awful and terrifying that is. People need to repent. God also sends these things to end the lives of individuals whose appointed time has come. Both God's children and those who are not God's children in this world. All of them, all of us, have an appointed time for our lives to come to an end. And although there, are, um, a, there is a multitude, there's a multitude of different ways that God takes us out of this world, it is always according to his purpose and according to his timing. And so he removed people from this world. He also sends these bad things to, to chasten or discipline his people. He disciplines us. He, he, he disciplines us and reminds us that we need to pay him more attention. We need to devote ourselves more fully to him. And it tests our faith. It tests, it tests the faith of God's people. How will they react? Will they panic? Will they wonder why God's done this thing? Or will they just trust? Will they have a peace about them? And for us, really, you know, this is... The big thing here is it's encouraging the church to pray. We should pray more earnestly for people. And we should warn people with more urgency about the judgment that is to come. Get them to think about eternity. So there are, there are so many so many reasons, so many consequences. And when we look back, we'll see all the consequences of God sending this virus. We will see in years to come, we will look back and we will marvel, marvel at the things that have fallen out because of this. So... What should our response be? What should what should we do? How should we react? Well, we should certainly trust God, shouldn't we? We should we should trust God and remember, as it says in First Peter, that He cares. He cares for us, and we should continue to worship Him. Now, I know that churches are now starting to um, they're starting to suspend all meetings in our country. Yet certainly that's, uh, that's, that's something that we can't rule out for ourselves either. That we may have to suspend meetings until further notice. And that's... It's most obviously a bad thing. It's most obviously a negative thing. We, we, to fulfil you know, our Christian sort of duties, and, and, and not just duties... Just experiencing the joy of meeting together and worshiping God together. We're going to have to do without that maybe for, for a while. But we should continue to worship him at home. 
wherever we find ourselves. So in the absence of the luxury of meeting with other believers, compensate. Pray more at home. Use the time to get into the scriptures more. Go into some maybe deeper Bible study that will take several months. Lots of things we can do. We should certainly pray earnestly for repentance. I mean, we've been praying for a revival amongst us and also repentance in the world outside. We've been praying that particularly consistently since the beginning of the year. And who knows whether that this this, uh, small but worldwide uh, renewal of interest in, in, in praying for a revival and praying for repentance and conversions, whether this is the answer. We, 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 we don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll see people in the world starting to consider their mortality. Who knows? But certainly, we continue to pray for repentance and opportunities to speak a word in God's favour. Now, um, the business about taking precautions. Some Christians think that the best attitude is to be careless. Because being careless is more biblical and it shows faith. All I would say is that while we need to trust, while we need not to, need to avoid uh, fretting about what are we going to do tomorrow and the next week and the week to come? We're not to panic about those things, certainly. There's enough trouble in today, the Bible says, to be, to be dealing with. But I, I would say to those people, you know, cast your mind back to when Jesus was told to throw himself off the temple. Satan said, why don't you just throw yourself off? Show some faith. God, God, your, your Father in heaven, he'll... He won't let you die, he'll look after you, he'll catch you, he'll send angels to, to cushion the blow and to, to carry you off. You just have to cast your mind back to that and remember what Jesus' response was. Don't tempt God. Don't be irresponsible and then expect God to save you. It's just silly. I've said before that if I walked out in front of a bus trusting God to save me, I will probably end up flat on the road, dead. God, end my life <laughs> by, a, by a bus uh, because, because I was stupid. So without decrying people's uh, faith, we need faith and we need to pray, but we need to take precautions. We should take precautions. It's, it's not just for ourselves, it's for the sake of our family and for the church family. It's okay if you're young saying, I'm young, I can get this, I can cope with it, I'll come out the other end in all likelihood and everything will be fine and then I've had it then. That's not really the point because the more careless you are, the more likely it is to spread to people you know in the church. And a small church like us, we can't afford, we can't afford to lose anyone. So it's for the church. And it's also for society. It's out of a love for the larger society. Why would we not care for them? We would want to minimise the suffering. 
on, I noticed that on the on uh, social media and so on, a couple of people have posted uh, a quote from Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther lived during the uh, Black Death of the 15th century. And this is what he says in answer to the question, you know, should we take precautions or just trust God? He says this, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus, perchance, inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbour needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely, as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy. So all those hundreds of years ago, our brother, Martin, was in a similar but worse situation and he thought it was wise to take precautions and also trust in God as well. So advice on the ground for us then, what, 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 what would I suggest? If churches are staying open, I mean this advice might not apply to churches in different parts of the world and different sized congregations and different setups and different cultures but certainly I would just say that we should if we're going to meet then we should have less contact or no contact no physical contact we can avoid shaking hands and hugging and kissing can't we just for just for a while the less the better we can use hand gel hand gel as we come in and as we leave another idea is to use the same hymn book rather than use uh, different ones each week. Maybe sit in the same place each week with a hymn book in front of you so you can use the same one. Uh, breaking of bread, so breaking of bread inst instead of, uh, well as we do of course, I, I take hold of the bread and break it in two and then give it to be distributed and broken by, by the people into smaller chunks. But that can be cut up beforehand, hygienically cut up into numerous pieces. And of course the, the glasses are all, glasses for the wine are already separate. The giving out of uh, literature, either through doors or handing them out to people in the market, will not be taking place for the foreseeable future. Firstly because in terms of the market, getting, getting close to you know many hundreds of people, probably not wise. Of course, many of those people won't go to the market for the time being anyway. But the ones that do will probably be unlikely to want to accept literature, given you know from from me, thinking that they will they will catch this virus, and so it's a bit pointless. But certainly, we can continue through social media if you are a, a user of that. So we can use that through the internet, we can post scriptures and, and comments uh, 
wise comments as you are led. And if meetings are all suspended, then we will resort to other ways of working. We will work around it like the church has done in the past. So, for example, the messages from New Road are on cinemanaudio.com and also there's also uh, YouTube and uh, numerous other ways that we can communicate the, the message, uh, have the gospel preached and so on. We have to adapt and I'd just like to finish on this uh, before we get into uh, 1 John. I just want to remind you what it says in Romans. This is one of my favourite verses. Remember it says all things work together for good to them that love God. The, my old Geneva Bible says all things work together for the best to them that love God. And so I'll just leave you with that hearty scripture from God's word and we'll move on now to John's first letter. Today we shall look at the first five verses of John's fifth chapter. The fifth chapter of 1 John. We have seen so far that John's approach is firstly pastoral. We have talk of the love of God to us and also our love to him and our love to other people, especially the brethren. It is also a theological aspect to the letter. We've spoke much about the nature of God itself. The nature of God being that he is, for example, light. And last week we saw how he is all love. An important attribute, love. We said that true love, therefore, is from God. We said that it proves that we are born again when we exercise this true love that is derived from God. It's an important attribute of his. And it moved God to send his son to die for his people. And curiously, God's love is said to be perfected when we love others. And just to reiterate what I said last time, God's love is there perfected not in its quality, but in its purpose. That is, God had a purpose for this aspect of his love whereby he showered it on his church and expects the church to then itself love others. And that is a mission accomplished for that love. And so if we, God forbid, are given the love of God and don't express it to others, then we are hindering that purpose of God's love. So today then, the first five verses, and even here, even here today, we can see the three great themes of the letter, faith, love, and obedience. We see them to begin with. We see that faith is connected to regeneration, of course. It says in the first verse, 
whosoever believeth. That is faith. Believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. There is your regeneration. And so they connect it. And so we could perhaps paraphrase this and say, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ has clearly been born of God. They've clearly been born of God. And so what, what is this criterion? We are to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It says in verse 5, Jesus is the Son of God. So we stitch those two things together. And it, it, it describes what we believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Just to remind you that the view that John sought to oppose here was chiefly expounded by Corinthus. And so Corinthus's view found its way into the various uh, branches of the cult of Gnosticism. And so what did Corinthus say? He said that Jesus Christ was made up of two individuals. That the Christ temporarily inhabited the body of Jesus. And that also Jesus was not born of a virgin. Now I will say that that particular, that particular uh, error is not really seen much today to speak of. However, there are, of course, there are still many um, false views around today that Jesus is just a man and that he was a good teacher and perhaps some would even say that he was perfected in his nature by the presence of the Holy Spirit within. But none of those things are what the Bible teaches. The Bible says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There is apostolic testimony to this. For example, we have uh, in Matthew uh, 16 and uh, verse 16, Jesus had asked Peter, What's your opinion, Peter? Who, who do you think I am? It says, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. There is apostolic testimony there. And also, if we look in Acts uh, chapter 17, we will see another example where Paul, in the first uh, three verses in Acts 17, it says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again, from the dead 
This Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, he says. This Jesus is in fact Christ. Now, this notion of God being in the flesh is not fully explicable by man. And yet I find myself having to go as far as I can in getting this point across of who he was. And so how we might describe it is like this. We have the divine nature, the divine nature, and a human nature in the one person. A divine and human nature in the one person that is Jesus Christ. And we must understand that those two natures are preserved. The divine is not made less divine as a result of intermingling with the human nature. And the human nature is not made divine by its association with that divine nature. They remain completely preserved. It's interesting, you know, folks, that we, we see the, the members of the Trinity talk to each other. We see the Son addressing the Father. We see the communication within the, within the Godhead. But we never see Jesus Christ speaking to himself. We never see, if you like, Jesus talking to Christ. It, it's, it's silly because it's, it's one person there. And Jesus never refers to himself in the plural. We have God incarnate here, God in the flesh. And only God incarnate could be a sinless sacrifice. Only God incarnate could be a sacrifice of infinite value. Only God incarnate could bear the fierceness of God's wrath. And it was only God incarnate who could have the power to conquer death and raise himself from the dead. It says here in Romans, in the first chapter, it says in verses 3 and 4, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Okay. We're still in verse 1. It says, Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth also him that is begotten of him. Now that sounds a bit of an awkward phrase there. But of course, how we understand it is, is simply, believers on Jesus Christ are born of God. And if we love God, we love his other children. If you love God, you love his other children, other believers. How do we love them? We, we talk about this love every week. How, how do we love them? We, well, we, we esteem them. We hold them in greater esteem than we do ourselves. We assume that they sin less than us. How else do we love? We well, we want their happiness. We, we genuinely want their 
happiness. We want good for them. We want more good for them than we want for ourselves. There's also a delight in communion with the brethren. That's part of love as well. It is, it is wanting to be with each other. You know? And also love is tied in with service. We, we just love to serve others. We, we, we almost hope for opportunities to serve them in some way. If we look at verse 2, we, when we read this, it may have occurred to you that this is a, a slightly unusual or even backward way of expressing the truth. You see, back in chapter 3, chapter 3 and uh, verse um, 14, I'll just remind you what, what was said there. Chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So when we come to this particular verse, you might like to read it as, you know, we become aware of our love for the brethren when we get to know God. But I think rather it's better understood as this. Loving God shows that our love for the brethren is true love. You remember that we laboured this point last week. The nature of true love. And so as we apply that to verse 2 today, it leads us to that conclusion that when we love God, when we keep his commandments, in other words, when we are in a proper relationship with him, then we can be sure that the love we have for the brethren is real and true. In verses 2 and 3 we have mention of, of course, these commandments and Although verse 2 begins by saying about us loving God and keeping the commandments. Whereas verse 3 goes further and says that loving God is keeping his commandments. And so we shouldn't really be surprised at this that that love for God is defined as, if you like, keeping his commandments, obeying him. Because you'll remember that we saw that genuine love for the brethren was not primarily emotional, but is, is rather shown through our actions. Our love for the brethren shown through actions. You may like to compare that to true faith, you know, true, true faith on its own as an inward, an inward emotion or an inward attitude is not enough. It needs to be accompanied by good works. And so, with love for the brethren, it's, uh, it certainly is 
primarily to do with doing people good and it should be accompanied by an inward feeling as well that we want their good most certainly but it's not primarily emotional and so here we see that there is a connection between the attitude and the actions that they are required we are required to obey God and that we cannot describe a mere inward love for God as genuine if it does not produce obedience now verse 3 tells us that doing this that obeying God is not grievous it is something that is not difficult it is not a hardship now compare that with those who were under the law let me read from Acts uh, chapter 15 and verses verse uh, 10 uh, Acts 15 and verse 10 now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear hmm we see that even with people today people today around us cannot be said to be under the yoke of mosaic law but still the the, the basic elements in obeying God are grievous to them I mean let's just take this one whatever you do whatever you do in life whether you're eat, eating or drinking or whatever it is you're doing do it all to the glory of God. How about this one? God says you must not steal. You must not steal. You must not forge documents. You must not be deceptive when you're submitting your tax returns or your benefits claims. People just find that too burdensome to... To, to be honest and to also glorify God in what you do it's just two examples but for us what is discomfort for them is, is our joy and why is that why is why is it that these rules if you like these obligations are not burdensome to us well because we, we love God do you not love to do good things for those people in your life who you love? So it is when we love God. It is a joy to do things for them. It's our greatest joy. And we always trust that obeying God is for the best. It's always for the best. And we shouldn't rule out, of course, that there is, in fact, an eternal reward, an eternal reward for those who live by faith in Christ and who obey God it says here in Matthew Matthew's 11 chapter and verse uh, 30 I'll do verse 29 as well Jesus says take my yoke upon you and learn of me 
For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It is indeed, it is our joy to save. You look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Whatever, whoever is born of God overcometh the world. Overcometh the world. Do you remember this? Uh, sorry, do you remember chapter 2? When that address of the, the fathers, the young men, and the children, remember it cycled through those three groups uh, twice. And it says to the young men that they were overcomers. Overcomers. And chiefly this overcoming, this, this victory, is by faith. It's chiefly through faith. Now it's not limited to when we first trusted in Christ. But certainly that was a victory. That was a victory. It's because by that faith, by that initial faith, we overcome unbelief and Satan in that conversion. It is by faith that we are united, we're united to Jesus, so that we, as it were, we die with him, we live with him, and we obey with him. And in these, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And it is through faith that we have the blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life. 